This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. My name is Owen and I am one of the co-lead pastors and, well, I don't know if you've... Who's fed up with the Covid crisis? Anyone fed up? Yeah, right, I thought it might be. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm starting to detect... I do read the papers and, and, uh, from time to time and, and I, do, I am starting to detect a change of tone with relating to the crisis. Uh, there are scientists now that are starting to say that Omicron is kind of like, if this, this, this virus could be the beginning of the end, could be the beginning of the end. And in spite of the fact that the NHS is under huge pressure right now, um, uh, we are definitely starting to hear uh, possibilities of a future where we can actually live with this virus rather than have our lives shaped by it. Well, I don't know about you, but that is an amazing amazing hope I'm, I'm thrilled by the possibility of that and uh, I think that's because the last two years have been intense haven't they they've been overwhelming I mean life has changed hugely because of it you know back in uh, I think it was the end of February uh, 2020 just before the pandemic hit just before the restrictions were brought into being Claire and I had a prophetic word given to us by someone that God was going to completely um, uh, reconstruct Seven Vineyard and um, at the time, um, we were having a number of prophetic words given to us. And, uh, but this one really struck with us. I said, oh, God, what do you mean by that? Like, that sounds scary. <laughs> what do you mean? You're going to reconstruct the church. You're going to change everything. And, um, and, of, uh, and we had no anticipation of what was to come. Like, none of us. None of us have ant- could have anticipated what this uh, COVID pandemic would do to our lives, right? None of us could anticipate the changes that have been made to our lives as a result of it. Well, we couldn't anticipate the changes that would happen to the church. You know, more people will listen to this service right now online than they will be in the room. Um, we, uh, we've changed half the staff team. Um, we, we, we've found that people have realised that actually doing Sunday service isn't the only key to their spiritual and emotional health and have started to embrace rhythms and lifestyles that actually grow their emotional and spiritual health. We've, we've realised that our spiritual health doesn't outpace our emotional health. There's so much about what we are as a church that has changed. And uh, if you're just like... Uh, getting involved with Seven, then you just know that you're at the beginning of a, a new season in the life of this church, and we're really excited about it. We're really excited about what God's going to do with us and what God is doing with us. So um, as, we, uh, as, we, as we think about um, uh, our understanding of God, uh, we want to just acknowledge as well that, you know, some of us have, st- have changed the way we think about God. We've, we've changed the way we imagine our faith and think about our faith and uh, so one of the reasons why during the pandemic we've been teaching into things like uh, uh, the letters of Paul is is that we wanted to kind of deepen our understanding of the history around the time in which the Bible was written. N.T. Wright who is one of the foremost the world's foremost New Testament scholars I I, I kid you not the guy is a legend uh, and widely respected as one of the one of the great contemporary uh, theologians of our time he says this that that uh, history uh, prevents faith becoming fantasy and faith prevents history becoming mere academic theory. So if you're worried about whether your faith is, is a fantasy, then just start to just read the Bible in its historical context and you will start to understand that it is much more rooted than you could ever believe. So as we begin 2022... 
uh, we're going to start a new series based on the teachings of, or rather the account of Mark. Uh, it's the Gospel of Jesus according to Mark, and uh, we're, gonna, we're actually going to be spending quite a bit of time on this uh, over the next few months, and we'll, be, we'll introduce another box set as well, but we're really excited about just digging deep into who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Think you know Jesus? Well, let's see if we can know him even better. Not sure you know Jesus? Then let's introduce you to him. So, uh, we're going to look at the, uh, at the uh, account of Mark, and if you've got a Bible, or if you've got the Bible app on your phone, if you haven't got the Bible app on the phone, by the way, then do download it. It's a great little app. Um, I mean, there are other Bible apps, but I think the Bible app seems to be the one. It's the one with the brown cover on it, because Barbers are always brown covers, aren't they? <laughs> Um, and uh, Mark is an interesting character because Mark actually is um, thought to be a secretary to the Apostle Peter. And um, you can imagine Peter having a secretary, right? Uh, kind of just write this down, Mark. I'm going to write down, I'm going to tell you everything I know about Jesus. You see, um, Mark's account is the account of Peter. It's Peter's account. Uh, scholars think that uh, Peter was was almost certainly the source of Mark's uh, gospel. Um, what we understand uh, is that, that Peter most likely um, sat down with Mark over quite a period of time and basically shared all of the stories that he had with Mark about Jesus. In fact, if you read through Mark, there's almost no part of Mark that doesn't involve Peter. So just try that. Read through it and just ask yourself, oh, where is Peter? Just almost like, Write a tick next to the uh, in your Bible, or, or just highlight it where you see Peter's name, and you'll see Peter, 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 time and time again. So it really is. Mark is really the eyewitness account of Peter. Now, who was Peter? Well, Peter was one of the first people who Jesus called to be one of his disciples, uh, and Peter became known as, if you like, the leader of the twelve disciples, the most senior, the first amongst equals. And and Peter was told by Jesus that he would build his church on Peter. Uh, there is this sense that Peter was the main guy. So we really can't get that much closer to Jesus than Peter. There were James and John as well were also considered to be particularly close to Jesus. But Peter really is the one whom, if I was wanting to hear about Jesus, I'd probably be like, I'd like to hear Peter's account. Uh, well, we've got it. This is Peter's account, scholars think, uh, written down uh, by Mark. And Mark's account of uh, Peter's um, sort of stories. I mean, I can just imagine Peter regaling Mark with his stories and of the adventures that he and Jesus shared together. I can just imagine him doing that and just kind of, oh, there was that time when we did this, and oh, and then there was this time when we did this. It reminds me of my children. I've got three children, and when they were young, um, what would happen would be uh, if they were, if I was ever asking them, like, how was it? Like, maybe, how was your day at school? Um, then, um, then it would just be like a breathless account of what actually happened. So yeah, we got to school and we had the register and then we had some reading practice and then we went out and played outside and we ran around on the deck and we played in the climbing frame and then we had milk and then we went back inside and then we did geography and then we had lunch. Do you know, do you know what a how a child does it? Mark kind of reads like that. It's kind of like this event after event after event after event. In fact, the interesting thing about Mark is, is that he doesn't include half of the teachings of Jesus that we see in the other accounts of Jesus' gospel in Matthew and Luke. Mark doesn't include half as much as those guys do in terms of actual teaching. It's just more about what Jesus did. 
And uh, there is teaching of what Jesus said, but, but there's not as much as there is in Matthew and Luke. Now, as we explore Mark's account of Jesus, um, we're going to be using a variety of sources to inform our understanding. There'll be more speakers than just me sharing about Mark. Um, um, but one of the core texts that we've kind of used as the scaffold, if you like, for this uh, box set series is a book by Tim Keller, who leads a Presbyterian church um, in New York. And uh, his book's called King's Cross. And uh, if you want to get that book and read it, then you're really welcome to. But know that that will form the scaffold for this box set series. And and the reason for that is, is that he suggests that Mark's account is presented to us in two symmetrical acts, chapters 1 to 8 and then chapters 9 to 16. And in um, chapters 1 to 8, he describes us, uh, us discovering Jesus' identity, and then chapters 9 to 16 is about his death on the cross. So if, you, if you're kind of thinking, how, what's, this, what's shaping this, what does it look like, then have a look at Tim's book. Um, Suffice to say that Mark is also much shorter than Luke and Matthew, uh, which is another reason why we're doing it. Um, otherwise, we'd be here doing it all year. Uh, but um, uh, the reason for that is, is because there's less teaching, at uh, least less of Jesus' teaching in Mark's account than there is in the other books. Now, as with all our talks here at Seven, um, our goal, our goal, literally my goal right now, and you might be thinking, what is the goal? What is the point of what I'm trying to do here? What I'm going to try and do here, and what all our speakers try and do, is get us real to the presence of God. For us all to actually experience, in this moment, the presence of God. You may have experienced that in the worship. We're going to try and do that in the talks. That's what we try and do. Because what we're trying to do is root the historical reality of Jesus into our reality 2,000 years later. That's what we're trying to do. So my prayer is, is that we would experience that even now, that you'd be experiencing something of the presence of God. God inviting you just to draw near to him. And today, as with all weeks, I want to ask you a question. There's one question I'm going to ask you. And it's a question that maybe you're asking as well. And that question is, where does love come from? Where does love come from? Have you ever, have you ever wondered, where does love come from? Why do we love? Why do we value love more than we, love, uh, than we value hate? Why is love always the thing that we always come back to as the kind of thing that holds us together as a human race? Why is it such a high value for us? And... Um, and, and there are many answers uh, to this question, anthropological, sociological answers. But today, I want to share with you from Mark, in his first chapter, a theological answer to that question. Where does love come from? So, we're going to read from Mark 1, uh, 1 to 13. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Slightly confusingly, that's actually from Malachi, not Isaiah. But this bit's from Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made out of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open with the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. Now, let's assume for a moment that what we're hearing here is not just Mark, okay? We're not just hearing Mark's voice in that. We're hearing Peter's voice because Peter was telling Mark what to write down. Mark would have added some editorial, but what we're hearing is Peter's voice, Peter's biases, Peter's perspectives. And as, an, as I've said, Peter was one of the closest people to Jesus. So when we're hearing Peter, we're also hearing what Jesus would have told him. Because some of these experiences, only Jesus would have experienced. We don't know if Peter actually witnessed this event. But what we do know is that Peter was really close to Jesus. So Mark and Peter begin their account of the good news of Jesus with a statement of who Jesus is. Jesus the Messiah. Now, growing up as a boy, um, I was, and probably more recently as well, <laughs> I still find it slightly weird to hear people called Jesus. I don't know if anyone else feels like this. Um, when I discovered professional footballers um, uh, called Jesus, it kind of disturbed me slightly. So we've got Jesus Navas, they, he plays for Man City, or used to play for Man City. Gabriel, uh, well, we, he's not, we didn't pronounce the name Jesus, it's Gabriel Jesus, okay? Because Jesus, Jesus is a very common name in Spanish, but for me, it's sacrilege. It's like, how dare you be called Jesus? Like, I've grown up hearing about Jesus being the savior of the world. Like, how could you be called Jesus? It's such a weird name for someone. Why would you call yourself Jesus? Which is absurd, because Jesus is actually the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Joshua, which is a much more common word, which I have no problem uh, with somebody calling their kid Joshua, but Jesus somehow kind of feels a bit weird. But there you go. There's uh, an example of our strange filters that we apply to the world in which we live. You know, my Christian upbringing has made it weird for me that someone's called Jesus. But Joshua, that's not a problem. Because the word Joshua is actually the Hebrew name for Jesus, which means God is salvation. I mean, Joshua, some of you that know your Bibles well will know that Joshua uh, was kind of Moses' protege and he led the Israelites into the promised land, into the land flowing with milk and honey, this amazing place that God had promised them. Joshua was like, was their saviour. He led them into the promised land. So when uh, Jesus was called Jesus at his birth, uh, he was called Joshua, which means God is salvation. That's first thing we learn about Jesus, that God is salvation. His, na his name means God is salvation. The, the second is uh, this word, um, Messiah. Now, Messiah is actually a Hebrew word. We're much more familiar with the Greek word Christ, um, which is the translation of, of Messiah. And Christ, actually, we've actually drawn that word into English. So, so Christ is almost like an English word now. We've adopted it into the English language, like we've adopted so many words. Um, you know, did you know that 6,000 English words are actually French? 
Any word ending ENT is a French word. Any word ending ION is a French word. The reality is, is that English is an amazing, uh, well, it's just a mixing pot, really. There's loads of different kinds of language. But Christ is, is an English word now, but actually it's translated from Messiah. And if we were really being accurate in English, we would translate it as anointed. So rather than Jesus Christ, we'd say Jesus anointed. Because that's what Messiah means. It means anointed, anointed by God. Some of you will be familiar with priests that anoint people with oil. Some of you may even be familiar with the fact that the queen was anointed with oil when she was crowned back in 1952. Is that right? And the oil is symbolic of the presence of God. So what uh, Mark is saying what Peter is saying is that Jesus was not only God's salvation but he was also the anointed one he was the anointed one anointed with the presence of God so where Jesus went the presence of God went and so Mark and Peter are cutting straight to the chase and saying oh straight to the point and saying Jesus is God's anointed Jesus is God's saviour now that's really important uh, because if God's presence is on him that means something else as well. And Mark goes straight to this. He calls him the son of God. Now that's a quite unusual phrase. Um, it's not, not all the original manuscripts of Mark's account actually include the son of God. But we know that throughout the rest of Mark, he continually refers to Jesus as the son of God. Why? Because that was actually uh, what Jesus referred to himself as, the son of God. And in claiming to be the son of God, he was claiming to be divine which is, like, stupefying. Like, it's incredible to claim to be divine. If I stood up here claiming to be divine, you would really be talking to Claire about getting me sectioned because clearly I'm, I'm claiming to be God. Like, that would be a weird thing for me to do. It was a weird thing for people to ascribe to Jesus, but nevertheless, they did. And Mark reinforces the divinity of Jesus by quoting two Jewish prophets, and I've already mentioned them, Malachi and Isaiah, and the two prophets speak of a forerunner to God's arrival on the planet, someone who will prepare the way for the Lord. And that person is called John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is actually related to Jesus through their mothers. Not quite sure. Some people think of Mary and Elizabeth as cousins, but I don't think they were. I think scholars think that it was a less, it was a less clear description of what their relationship was. But nevertheless, they were related. So... Given their unusual birth, both of them had unusual births, they're, it would have been part of their family story. Oh yeah, John and Jesus were born like this. When they were growing up, they would have probably known of each other if they didn't know each other well. We don't know, unfortunately, what happened in those years between them being born and them actually uh, appearing in their sort of adult ministries together. But the reality is, is that they... They were related, and in all reality, they would have known each other. Mark doesn't include a full account of John's life. Um, you can read in Matthew and Luke for that. Um, but he does include the occasion when John recognizes Jesus and baptizes him. And this tells us a little bit more about Jesus' identity. At that time, it says Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water... He saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. 
We can't be sure whether Mark or Peter actually witnessed the baptism of Jesus, but what Mark includes here is one of the great Trinitarian passages of the New Testament. What do I mean by that? Well, Mark actually identifies three active characters, parties in the baptism of Jesus, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, the audience who uh, would have been watching the baptism, would have heard the story about this dove descending on Jesus, would have recognized immediately that that was an allusion to the creation story. Because the, in Aramaic, the creation story that we read in Genesis, you can even read it today, was actually describes the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters like a dove. And so what we see here is that Mark is using a, a, a metaphorical device, if you like, to draw us back to the creation story. And what we see in the creation story is that God was present as God speaking as the Father, God speaking through the Son, the Word, and the, pre- and, and, and the creation being created in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Mark draws our attention to this right at the beginning of his, of his account of Jesus' life. And it says, at Jesus' baptism, you've got the Father speaking to him, you are my Son whom I love. The Son is right there in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is descending on him like a dove. And what Mark does here, scholars think, is actually draw attention to and draw a line of comparison between this and the original Genesis story. In other words, he's saying, in Jesus, at this moment of Jesus' baptism, creation restarts. There's a starting over. There's a rebirth. And incidentally, if you read the Old Testament like, and, and oversee, it's kind of step back and look at the whole Testament, Old Testament as a whole, what you'll see is that there are, God makes many attempts to start over and, and, and many attempts to rebirth and recreate his order in the world. Um, you can see that in Noah. You can see that to some extent in Abraham. You can see that with Moses. Um, you can see that after the exile with people like Nehemiah and Ezra. And what we see here is Mark saying, this is the rebirth of creation. Jesus' baptism got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Tim Keller um, <laughs> Tim Keller in his book, King's Cross, says, the Christian teaching of the Trinity is mysterious and cognitively challenging. (laughs) And and you'll probably appreciate that, right? Because actually, this idea of God being Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons, is cognitively challenging. You can't get your head around it. Like, how does that work? Uh, The doctrine of the Trinity um, is that God is one God, eternally existent in three persons okay we're not talking here about three gods who work in harmony with each other we're not talking uh, about uh, about one god that takes various different forms or three different forms and 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 appears in one form and then another and then another instead trinitarianism which is the if you like one of our foundational doctrines in church it holds that there is one god in three persons who know and love one another One God in three persons or three people who know one another. When Jesus comes out of the water, the Father envelops him with a statement of love and the Spirit of God descends on him with power. There's this threefold community and it's 
it'll be, it's slightly foreign to us, even as I say it now, even though you'll be familiar with the idea of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, because we can't get our head around it. One God in three eternally existent persons. Elsewhere in, 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 in one of the accounts of Jesus' life, John 17, Jesus suggests, this is Jesus, suggests that each person of the Trinity glorifies the other. He says, Father, glorify me as I have glorified you. So this is this idea the theologians have that, that, that the three members of the Trinity glorify one another. What does it mean to glorify? It means to serve, it means to honour, it means to exalt. Um, one theologian suggests this, that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit exalt each other. They commune with each other. They defer to each other. Each divine person harbours, I love this word, harbours. Just imagine like a harbour, a stone harbour down on the Cornish coast where boats come and they, 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 it's a safe place. They can moor and anchor and, and not be destroyed by the swell and the waves of the open sea. So each, each person, each divine person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit harbours the others at the centre of their being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. God's interior life therefore overflows with regard for others. Another way of saying that is, is they orbit each other. They orbit one another. They serve, they defer, they love one another. Now, I think maybe we can relate to this because of our own experiences of community, but let's just, let's just take a couple of examples. Let's first of all just look at family, and let's look at friends, and then let's look at the, the one that we tend to perhaps overstate in our society, in our culture, and that would be marriage. Um, but let, let, let's do this. Let's first of all look at our families. So think of the relationship between parents and children. Most parents in general will give of themselves to their children, right? You just can't help it. Like when it, you have a child and you kind of come out of the maternity hospital and you put that child in the car seat of the car, up to that point the nurse carries it, the midwife carries it, you're not allowed to carry your own baby out of the maternity hospital. They strap it into the car and they walk away and then you're on your own and it's just you and you kind of look at each other like we did when Jake was born and like, what do we do? Get him home, what do we do? Well, we respond to his needs. He's crying, right, we need to change his nappy or feed him. When you have a child, you give of yourself and, and in many ways as a father and as a mother, I think we felt like we were growing less as they were growing more. So as they grew, we got less. You're like, we became shells of ourselves. Um, emptied ourselves of all of our life, you know, our energy, our sleep, everything just kind of like drained out of us. Like when I look back at the pictures of myself, Claire looks radiant as you'd imagine, but I looked shocked, shell shocked, frankly. Um, it, was, it was such, it's such an incredible experience of, of self-giving. And, and that's what you do. And then as they grow up and as they reject your overtures, <laughs> like if I go for a hug now, it's like, get away, leave me alone. Why do you have to hug me? <laughs> Honestly, that's the conversation I have with some of my kids. Um, and, and the reality is, is that they become more independent, which is exactly right. But in those early years of having children, you, you're just self-giving. You just self-give, give, give, give. And, um, and the reality is, is that... Um, it's not a perfect relationship. Like, we all offend one another, we upset each other, we have to apologise, we annoy one another, we irritate one another. And so families aren't perfect. I don't think I've ever met... I used to think my family was the only perfect family that wasn't perfect. I mean, honestly, not perfect. I mean, my family, Hudson family would tell you that. But then I realised that everyone's family is not perfect. Am I right? 
Yeah, there's a few of you going, no, yeah, no. No, no, most of us know that our families aren't perfect. Why? Because we, do, we don't live like the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We, we kind of upset each other. We're selfish. We don't orbit one another. We don't serve one another. We don't defer to one another. I, I'm, I'm kind of reminded in that rebuke, which is um, attributed to Paul. I'm not sure it is, because I think the letter of Ephesians was written after Paul died, but um, certainly written by one of his followers. This rebuke uh, to the Ephesians, to t- children, stop dishonoring your parents. Kind of like that, that kind of feels right. Um, fathers, stop exasperating your children. Notice it's fathers that stop exasperating your children, not mothers. Right? I know that. I mean, I'm the one that exasperates my children. Um, but there is this kind of like Paul saying this, one of his followers is saying this because, you know, actually, families don't always work. You've got to be intentional, you've got to defer, you've got to love, you've got, it's an act, it's not just a feeling. Um, so what, what can we learn about the source of all this love? Because this, this love that we have theologically comes from the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, love, defer, care for one another, um, exalt one another, bless one another. What would that look like if we did that in our families? What would it look like for you to exalt and defer to your siblings? Um, what would it look like? I mean, I've talked before about the fact that because I'm distant, physically distant from my siblings, I don't spend a lot of time with them, so therefore I'm, they're not always in my mind, so therefore I'm not always caring for them. So what does it mean to actually do that? They're probably listening to this right now going, yeah, you're right, you're an awful brother. But the reality is, is that it means being intentional. And it means picking up the phone, it means texting, it means getting together. You've got to do that. You've got to give yourself to your family. What does it mean for you to give yourself to your family? Think about friendships. Um, uh, some of you will know that Dan and Karen Green and Claire and I are life, not lifelong friends, but we've been friends a long time. We've been friends since 2000. And um, uh, yeah, we have a beautiful friendship. We love them dearly. Oh yeah, there's that picture. That's why you go now. And uh, <laughs> that was a few years ago in, uh, in the door door. And I think we went canoeing that day. But all the kids looking really young. But here's the thing, right? Back in around 2012 when they returned to Bristol, Actually, one of the things we were thinking about as friends was, how could we commit to one another more? How could we be lifelong friends? What would it look like for us to be lifelong friends? Because so often, I don't know about you, but friends tend to be attached to your situation. Like that, We have some lovely friends from periods, previous periods in our lives, but we don't share a lot together anymore because we're not physically close to one another. And, um, and of course, when we do see each other, we pick up where we left off. But what would it look like to shape your life around the life of your friends? What would it look like to defer to them, to serve them, to love them, to prefer them? Have you, can, you, can you imagine some of your friendships lasting a lifetime? What would that look like? And we kind of had this conversation and, and we've kind of worked it out so far. We're not sure what the future holds, but, but we, what we are looking at is how can we commit to one another so we remain good friends for the rest of our lives? Wouldn't that be a special thing? Wouldn't that be incredible? What would it look like for you and your friends? What would it look like for your friendships to reflect the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? And, and let's talk about marriage, because I, I do think that marriage is probably the only time in our culture where we do commit to one another lifelong. Like, that's what marriage is, right? Like, I mean, that's, we don't really have a kind of checkout time, do we? <laughs> I, I've never been to a wedding where they say, yeah, we're going to be married for 20 years. Every, every married couple starts out intending to be married for the rest of their lives. Uh, 42% of us get divorced, including Christians. 
And, um, and obviously that's a complicated picture. But the reality is, is that marriage is probably the only relationship where we commit lifelong. And, um, and of course that means that if you are going to commit to someone, if you are contemplating getting married, please don't just rush into it. Please consider carefully who you're going to get married to. Please give some good thoughts to it, do some training. Pre-marriage training is such an important part of healthy marriages. You know, ask your friends, your family, all those around you that know you well, are you, do you think this person is the right person for me? And ask them honestly. So don't just kind of go, oh yeah, he's great. If he's not. You know, marriage and lifelong commitment, like we, we say in, in weddings, like, will we commit to supporting them? Well, yeah, but that kind of needs to start beforehand. Like, let's support one another if we are going to make a lifelong commitment. If you... If, you, if, if, you're, if you're making a lifelong commitment to someone, don't do it lightly. Be serious about it. Consider it well. But equally, I do think marriage gives us an opportunity to ask ourselves what kind of relationships do we want? Like, for instance, do we want to commit lifelong to our friends? And if we do, who and, and how are we going to do that? And what does that look like? And if God's put us in the basic social unit of family, what does it look like to be committed to our family? Or do we just kind of live as though, well, family, you can't choose them, they're there, so you just have to put up with them, even if you don't like them. What about if we change that and look to the source of all love, theologically, which is the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and say, how about we defer to one another? How about we love one another in a way that grows our relationship and brings us closer to one another? The Christian theological answer to the question, where does love come from? Why is love our highest value is in the Trinity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Their love, their deference, their care, their concern for one another is the model for love. And they invite us into that relationship. They invite us to share in that love relationship that they have with one another. And Mark gives us a glimpse of that unconditional love. Where he says to the Father, says, you're my son, I love you so much. And the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove. It gives new meaning to that phrase, God is love, doesn't it? You probably thought of God as singular when you've heard that phrase, God is love. God is love in a trinity. It's an active love. And it's a love that pre-existed us. So when God invites you into the love relationship between Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's an invitation to take seriously. Last thought. God's made people in his image. And if God is, is deeply relational... If unconditional love is, is the facet and the feature and the character and the value of the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, then that is, our, that is our model for what love looks like. Why do we love? We love because God loves. Let us, this year, as we start this new year, let us enter into a relationship with God where the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are selflessly, vulnerably loving, serving, and honoring one another, and orbiting one another. And let us be the type of person that serves, loves, and vulnerably honors, and cares for other people, and 
honours them by orbiting them rather than insisting that they orbit us. And that's the key to every healthy marriage. It's the key to every healthy family relationship. It's the key to every healthy fam um, friendship. That we don't ask them to orbit us, rather we choose to orbit them. It's a beautiful thing. Tim Keller describes it as a dance. It's a beautiful thing. Why don't we just respond to God's invitation to inviting us into the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Why don't you stand with me? And we're just going to just pray.